Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. We do not lose heart, Paul tells the Corinthians. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And part of that renewal is our gathering together to encourage and to love one another in the fellowship of the Spirit. It is balm for our soul from the travails of the day. And our prayers continue in earnest this week for our brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom remain trapped quite literally behind enemy lines in Afghanistan. We know that the highest sacrifice has been made by followers of Christ this week. So please continue to pray. Prayer is not a last option when all else fails. Prayer is the first and most powerful thing we can do. It moves the hand of God in accordance with His will. As one of my mentors in ministry often said, if we actually believed what the Bible said about prayer, we would do that more than we did anything else. Yet we know that sacrificing for our faith, having a faith that exacts a cost, has always marked the church. And in fact, this week marks the 359th anniversary of what was known as the Great Ejection. In August of 1662, there were over 2,000 ministers in the Church of England that were forced out. They were ejected, as it were, from the Church of England because they refused to bow to the edicts the church was passing down and the words that they were required to affirm in the common book of, in the book of common prayer. These were largely Puritan ministers that were gladly willing to suffer the persecution and the scorn for the sake of biblical fidelity, to hold to correct doctrine and to fight for the truth. We owe much of our roots as evangelicals and even in some fashion as Baptists for the sacrifice that these Puritans endured. In fact, if you desire to read a book that will tear your heart from your chest, there is a work titled Sermons of the Great Ejection. These are a collection of the sermons that were delivered by these Puritan pastors on what would have been their last day on the job, as it were. This last Sunday was even titled Farewell Sunday. They gave up their livelihoods and most had to move far away from where they served. You've heard your own pastor use the phrase, I preach as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. This was the banner cry of these 2,000 pastors that fateful Sunday. The quote, that quote actually comes from them. We remember their sacrifice this week because you and I stand on the shoulders of these giants. These men sacrificed much for something that is hard to motivate the American congregant to even learn about today. So let that stir our souls to growing in knowledge of doctrine and in love of Scripture. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, well, last week we began a very exciting two-part series titled The Feeding of the 25,000. And recall, that's not a typo. We are used to hearing about Jesus feeding the 5,000. But of course, as we'll see, this counted only the men. The truer number was much closer to 25,000. And we should be painting a picture in our mind as we glean all we can from the text, especially when it comes to narrative or stories like we see in Mark. I know my mental picture is quite different in visualizing 5,000 versus 25,000. And of course, what we have come upon in this amazing scene is so magnificent. It's so awe-inspiring and so consequential to the entire narrative of redemptive history. Jesus' feeding of the 25,000 is the only other event besides the resurrection that are recorded in all 
four Gospels. Only two events in all of Scripture made it into all four Gospels. And we have the privilege of continuing our deep dive into this scene happening just outside a small village of Bethsaida. Remember, this was the former home of Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. So this was happening on home turf for them. It's very familiar territory. And the disciples had just returned from what would have, must have been a missions trip for the record books. Remember, they had been empowered by Jesus to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And not only that, but they did it largely around the area of Galilee. This was where they grew up. This was around people they would have known. And the small villages that made up their hometowns may well have been the very first places they went when they were launched out. Recall that all but Judas Iscariot were from this very area they ministered in. And while that adds to the drama of their trip, it also adds to the complexity and to the difficulty ministering in and amongst family, amongst those who knew you before you knew Christ. Isn't that the hardest? Isn't that the hardest? And the disciples, though they were overjoyed to be back with each other and they had stories upon stories, the good shepherd sees his disciples that they're exhausted. They're physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. They were drained. They had left it all out on the field. They were no doubt mourning the death of John the Baptist as well. So Jesus wisely tells his disciples that he's going to pull them out of the fray, that they need to recover. And our text last week told us that they did not even have time to eat. The pace of ministry surrounding Jesus never stopped. And so that's pretty easy to imagine. So for my part, I consider, though, how frustrating that might have been for the disciples. The crowds thronged. The numbers were huge, but so few were coming with a saving faith. The actual fruit of disciples being made were somewhat small, considering the power that was presented. You'll not get a better preacher than Jesus. And yet even those who did take the next step in following Jesus would fall away the moment the road got hard or Jesus said difficult things. So let us encourage ourselves in that example. We are shown time and again in Scripture that the obedience is ours and the results are God's. The obedience is ours. The results are God's. And that's true encouragement because in our obedience, we don't wear the results or the outcomes. How freeing is that? The disciples will need to remember that. This day when 25,000, 25,000 would be fed in body and mind and soul, and yet 99% will be nowhere to be found when the rooster crows thrice. In fact, they may be even ones calling to have him crucified. We must be of good cheer. The obedience is ours and the results are God's. And indeed, we saw in our text last week that the disciples did get a bit of a reprieve, a, a bit of rest out over the water, out in the boat. About four miles distance, they traveled from Capernaum over to Bethsaida. But all the while, the crowd is what? They're running along the shoreline, visually following the boat. And the crowd is building and building as they pass each village, spreading the news that the healer was back. And finally, swelling to 25,000 and meeting the boat as Jesus and his disciples come ashore. Mark tells us when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Yes, Jesus saw the large crowd with his eyes 
And the disciples likely saw the crowd with their eyes. But to the, the crowds for the disciples, though, they represented work. They represented work and ministry. Thankfully, Jesus had a very different set of eyes. He had great compassion on them, meaning that Jesus was moved to the very core of his being for these people. There's no annoyance that his mini vacation was disturbed. There's not an ounce of selfishness in Jesus. Though if I were the disciples, my heart would have desired to pull anchor with 25,000 people waiting there for me, not our Savior. And even though we know that practically none of the people gathered here today would come to Christ in repentance and faith. None. Jesus had great compassion. We know from other gospel readings of this that Jesus not only taught them and not only fed them, but he also healed many as well. Common grace, as we learned last week, was being extended to all that were there. Though, as we'll later see, the exposure, that exposure to good, to the goodness of God, to taste and see that the Lord is indeed good, and to not listen and to harden your heart will only serve to be a testimony against them. It is far better to have never known than to have known and to have sat under the light and to reject it. We're accountable for the light we've been given. And we left off last week with Jesus teaching them many things and healing many people. And the story is picked up today with the late afternoon sun just beginning to cool. So let's begin. Mark 6. 35 through 44. Mark 6, 35 through 44. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and began saying, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and he broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them as well. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Let's pray. Lord, we do stand amazed at this story. To behold it in our mind's eye. Lord, we ask that this would serve to reorient our hearts this morning to what a mighty, mighty God we serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope our expository ears are tuned and ready because we're jumping right into our text this morning with much to see. So beginning with verse 35 and 36, I'll read them as one. And when it was already quite late, now stop there briefly. When it was already quite late, typically the main meal during this age was late in the afternoon. That's when people would gather for their main meal. So this scene is happening sometime after 3 p.m. or so, probably closer to 5. The sun had just started to give that different color 
as it's transitioning to dusk. But we see that the disciples say that it is quite late. Now, 3 or 4 or 5 p.m. might not sound quite late to most folks, but we live in very different times. Meals had to be prepared. Much time was given to preparation. There was no McDonald's. If the sun had already turned and your fire isn't even going, you're going to be eating in the dark. So we get a bit of an insight into this saying that his disciples came to him and began saying, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Now, if you would recall, the word desolate here is not meant to convey that this was some sort of dry or dusty or desert place. This, in fact, happened in April and everything would have been quite green and quite lush. Desolate is speaking more of location here than descriptive. And we know our setting is well outside of the town or village, right? And fair enough. What town besides Jerusalem are you going to fit 25,000 people all into one area? So a better word for our usage here instead of desolate might be rural. But this poses an even greater problem. It's both rural and the sun is turning to dusk. There really would be very few options. There's no Walmart. Even if they all went to the closest village of Bethsaida, population of what, two to three hundred, what are they going to have on offer? They cooked for their families. Not on the chance that a bunch of Baptists are going to show up for dinner. Even Miss Tina or Miss Diana could not pull that off. So the situation is a bit bleak for mealtime here. But that's just to plan. And we know that this was to plan by rotating the diamond of the Gospels over to John. It gives us a little different lens. No need to turn there, but I'll read it for you. John 6, 5 through 7. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into John's telling because this is Mark's telling and we want to tell what Mark wanted to retell. But this does give us a bit of color. And what do we see? We see that all this is planned. All of this is teaching and growth for the disciples. Jesus knew the moment that he left the boat from Capernaum what he would do. Take great comfort in that, saints. Take great comfort in that. And what is Philip saying? Master, teacher, I checked with Judas Iscariot who keeps the money bag and all the money in our entire treasury wouldn't be enough to give all these people a single bite. And the disciples are saying, Jesus is still talking and the sun is setting. Look at all these people. These were the first original Christians watching the clock when pastor slipped into their lunchtime. Wrap it up, Jesus. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Jesus asked this to test Philip. And a different response should have been forthcoming. Why? Just take Philip, for example. He had seen and been involved in what up to this point? The wedding at Cana? Water into wine? Jesus making something from nothing? Does that sound familiar? What we're about to see? Numerous miracles Philip had seen. Jesus' power over nature. The list goes on. And yet, what does he say? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Oh, we are sheep. And oh, do we need the great shepherd. And lest we sit in judgment, aren't we a funny lot as well? See, most of us probably think if we were Philip, we would have gushed with faith. 
We would have been extolling the mighty wonders of our great God, never doubting for a moment. No, we would have done it just as Philip did. Believe it. Be humbled by it. Back to our text. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Isn't it interesting that the heart of Jesus here is to let them come unto me. And the heart of the disciples is to send them away. Warren Wearsby, wonderful theologian and commentator, he picks up on this irony when he writes, quote, Jesus sent the 12 apostles out to minister because he had compassion on the needy multitudes. This time, the needy multitudes came to them and the disciples wanted to send them away. As yet, they had not learned to look at life through the eyes of their master. To them, the crowds were a problem, perhaps even a nuisance. But to Jesus, they were sheep without a shepherd, close quote. But are the disciples wrong here? Are they wrong? Not at all. Were their concerns justified? Absolutely. In fact, prudence would tell them that if they didn't do something soon, you might have a riot or a crisis on your hands. You now have 25,000 people that are hungry, and hungry turns hangry, doesn't it? All right. The disciples are being prudent here. They're merely being prudent. Faith does not always make the most sense on paper. We don't arrive at childlike faith by crunching the numbers and looking at raw facts. Our God is able. Both parties see the problem, but they have very different solutions. And yet rather than agree and diffuse the situation, Jesus throws gasoline on it. In verse 37, And he answered to them and said to them, You give them something to eat. We have to stop there. You give them something to eat. And the Greek here is is if it's as if Jesus is saying, yes, you're right. So go do it then. Go get on it right now. They don't need to be scattered for this to go find villages. You take care of it. Well, what on earth? Why is Jesus issuing an impossible command? He knows it's an impossible command. I was reminded when Jesus was approached by the rich young ruler who desired to know how he might obtain eternal life. And Jesus walked through the law with him, didn't he? And in self-righteous pride, the ruler said that he kept all of these laws since he was a child. So Jesus now tells him to do something he knows he won't do. And so he can't do. Give up your wealth. Give up your wealth. Well, this man... Well, to tell this man to do something that you know he will not do so that he cannot do, what's he doing? Jesus does it to expose the heart, to reveal what's underneath. The disciples had seen such wonders to this point, and yet still they thought carnally. They still thought naturally. Despite watching jars of water be turned into the finest wine ever made, they still went to check their bank account to see if there was money for the food they needed. Had they learned to believe God for big things yet, to exercise the gift of faith? Not instinctively, no. Jesus knows the path that each of these disciples are going to have to walk. They are going to know that they know that they know. When confronted with the largest problem, A 25,000 large problem. Our instinct is to give 10 looks to the problem and one look to Jesus. When we ought to give one look at the problem and 10 looks to Jesus. 
but I know I can speak for myself when I say my ratio is often wrong. You give them something to eat. Go ahead, you do it. And better yet, hurry up, because the day is waning. Jesus is exposing their hearts. He's teaching them that we do not think as the world thinks. We serve the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator God who rules and reigns over it all. Give us a fresh sense of that this morning, Lord. The disciples are presented with a humanly impossible and insurmountable problem, and they're told to fix it. And what is the response of the faith-filled heart? Saints, if God is in control of this world and of your life, if he is causing all things to work together for your eternal good, then consider from whose hand the very problem itself was given or allowed. Do we see how that frames the issue before we even begin to process the particulars? Whatever it is, however impossible or hard it is, that problem has been given or allowed by a father who loves us very much and is causing, hear that, causing all things to work together for your eternal good. Let that sink down into your spirit and lodge itself there. You will need it time and time again, just as Jesus knew his disciples would need it time and again. Saints, the truths that strengthen us, the weapons of our warfare, the tools we need to walk the Christian life are so simple. They're so simple. There's nothing complicated about understanding that whatever comes to me comes from a father who loves me and he will never forsake me. A child can understand that. Yet the response of the disciples in our text reveal a heart that shows that Jesus was quite right to expose what he did. Back to our text. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? You know, one temptation, saints, when walking through the gospel is to kind of get up on our high horse when looking at the disciples and their responses. I almost caught myself doing that as I was preparing this sermon until we dig into the monumental ask that Jesus is giving here. How much is 200 denarii? Well, one denarii was considered a day's wage. So if you count days off, this is almost a year's wages. And in fact, John tells us that the disciples said this year's wages would not even be enough. Now, I want you to see your yearly wage in your mind right now. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100,000. Now, that's the size of the problem the disciples are facing. As Jesus said, great, go take care of it. Go take care of it. Again, lest we be on our high horse with the disciples, how would we respond to a problem that took a year's wages to solve? But the thought that Jesus might just have a plan, that he just might provide, that Jesus actually had the solution, does not seem to have even entered their thoughts. Let us learn from this. That's why it's here for us to see this weakness in the disciples. Why make our own mistake when we can learn from someone else's, my mom used to say. So watch now Jesus' response, continuing our text in verse 38. How does Jesus respond? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look! Exclamation point. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. 
Classic Jesus response here, right? He returns a question with a question. How many loaves do you have? We know that the disciples really didn't have any. So Jesus says, go look. And John's gospel implies that the disciples, they kind of went wandering around the people asking them if they had any food. If you think about it, it's really kind of a silly, kind of a foolish scene. But we need to give credit where credit is due here. They have a 25,000 large problem here. And Jesus wants them to go look and see if they find any food. What would your heart be saying inside of you right now? What's the point? The problem is giant. You think someone has a 25,000 large buffet in their food sack? A million objections would have flooded into my mind here because there's no human answer to this problem. And yet the disciples go and they do what they're told. They obeyed, didn't they? Notice that. What is preceding the hand of God moving? Obedience. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. John's gospel tells us the disciples came back saying, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Well, just so we have an accurate picture in our mind's eye, you know, most movie scenes, when they when they show this scene with Jesus, they show some big, white, fluffy, beautiful loaves in Jesus's hands, don't they? Well, in reality, they would have been kind of a flatbread, really just a small individual person size, kind of a, a flat round disc or a biscuit. And the fish would not have been too picturesque, whole, beautiful silver fish like you see in the movies either, but would have likely been pickled or dry fish, not nearly as pretty. And what is in the minds of the disciples? What's in their minds is they bring back five flat biscuits that you could hold in one hand and two dried or pickled fish in the other. What exactly do you think you're bringing to Jesus here? A solution? No, they did not think that. Perhaps, hey, if you'd asked for it, hey, maybe you asked for it, Jesus, so here it is. This is what we could find. Or maybe is their memory starting to jog? Is faith starting to, to percolate and to sprout in them? Is the master about to do something here? I have no idea. But what we do know is that they came back with what they had. They came back with what they had. And good news, what you have is all that God asks for. That's good news. All we have, Lord, is five loaves and two fishes. Well, that's just great because that's all I'm asking for. Newsflash, every gift we bring to Jesus, every resource you have is inadequate for the job. Every one. And yet he uses it. He multiplies it. If you think you have little to offer, bring your little and watch what God does. Watch what he does. If you don't feel particularly gifted in any area, that's not true. Every Christian is given gifts. Bring it and use it. However small, watch what God does. Five loaves, two fishes. Jesus, this is like whistling in a tornado. What good will it possibly do? Watch what God does. That's what makes it so beautiful to have so little, to have little to offer in service or spiritual gifts or resources. Who gets the glory? God gets all the glory. No man would be able to claim the glory for what Jesus is about to do on this field as the sun begins to set. What was brought was inadequate. It was inadequate. But put into the hands of Creator God will fill every need. Let's watch what our Savior does. Verses 39 and 40, I'll read them as one. 
And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Well, remember that this would have been quite a chaotic scene. People would press Jesus, right? They would have all been on their feet, even trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Imagine 25,000 people. The other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus was healing people as well. So this ensures that it was a very chaotic scene as desperate people were trying to get close. But Jesus very quickly and very masterfully brings order to the chaos. He has them sit. I want you to sit. I want you to relax. Number one, that makes it easy for us to count everyone. And second, this will be a miracle for all to see. No one will be standing taller than another blocking the view. All will be sitting, all will see. And in fact, the Greek word here for sitting is used when we're talking about rows in a garden. So in truth, they actually sat in rows. Question. Question. Could Jesus simply have made loaves and fishes appear in every person's food sack that was there and just say, open your bags? Of course. Of course he could have. But he didn't. Jesus was always teaching. And as Jesus was already beginning to pull more away from public ministry at this point, in the midst of the 25,000, Jesus is really focused on teaching and pouring into his disciples as first priority. Yes, he had great compassion on the multitudes. Yes, he extends common graces to the masses of humanity. This ability to sit and enjoy the company of 50 to 100 other people, right? Marveling at what this teacher had done. Enjoying what I'm willing to bet was the best bread ever made and fish straight from the hands of God. Common grace is given to all these people in great compassion. But who is Jesus' eye fixed on? His bride. Here, his disciples. Those for whom he would die. Those for whom he will pour his life and his teaching into intimately. Those who are needed to be prepared for the road ahead. Those who will take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, but his gaze is fixed on his disciples. How easy is that to miss in the text? Our gaze is drawn to the crowd. It's the disciples. It's no different today. What God is doing in big and small ways through his lavish goodness on the multitudes. His eye is fixed on his church. It's fixed on his church. Everything he is doing, he is doing with his bride in mind. And that goes for the bad as well. COVID, God has his church in mind. Afghanistan, God is working for his children. His gaze is, is fixed on you. And it's not because we're something special in and of ourselves, but because we're trophies of his grace. God gets the maximum amount of glory through his children when he saves someone, when he brings them all the way from election to repentance and faith and justification, all along the path of sanctification, growing in holiness and godliness, and finally to glorification when we stand before him. God gets the maximum amount of glory for that. So his gaze is fixed on you. Yes, God is for us who can be against us. But first and foremost, God is for God. What brings him the maximum amount of glory? And that's his church. The psalmist calls us the apple of his eye. And Jesus is about to do all three of these things as this miracle unfolds. He's about, he's gonna, he's gonna lavish undeserved goodness on a crowd that will not follow him. 
And he's going to bring himself the maximum amount of glory by pouring into his disciples. So now finally, with only two sermons worth of introduction, the miracle. Verse 41. Verse 41. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. Stop there. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus prays here. But in all likelihood, Jesus would have prayed the common Jewish prayer for mealtime, which reads, praise be to you, O Lord, our God, king of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. Isn't that beautiful? And we almost see a pointing to the miraculous in this prayer, don't we? Who makes bread come forth from the earth? Jesus is, in effect, about to do this very thing. He is going to cause bread to come forth. He's creator God. And Jesus broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. This is a creative miracle. This is a continuous miracle. The two verbs I want us to focus on here quickly are broke and giving. Now, this gives us some insight into the mechanics of this miracle. Now, broke is in the aorist tense, meaning that the breaking was, of course, instantaneous. It was broke right now. But the giving is in the imperfect tense, meaning it was continuous. So in, so instant breaking of bread, continuous giving. Now, why does that matter? Well, that tells us that the actual miracle was occurring in Jesus' hands between the breaking and the giving. Can you see that? Can you see that? As he broke it, it multiplied. We need to see this miracle coming out of Jesus, meaning he didn't keep reaching into a bag, pulling out bread. That's not what we see here. He broke it instantly and continually gave it. The miracle was right in the breaking and the giving moment. That's amazing. But what the text shows us as well, I want us to see, saints, the agency that God uses to deliver the goods. Remember, we asked the question, could Jesus simply have made loaves and fishes appear in every person's food sack was there? Let's say, open your bags. Yes, of course, but he didn't. This was done directly for the disciples. You are going to directly receive from Jesus' hand everything you need to feed your people. As you walk up to that group of 100 people, you have nothing of yourself to bring. All that you bring is what you receive from the Savior. Jesus is teaching his disciples complete dependency on him. What they had to offer did not reside in them. No money could buy it. No effort could produce it. No merit could warrant it. All they had to bring to the table is what they were given from the very hand of God. We don't need to cross a bridge to find application here, saints, because we're swimming in it. And instead of driving home a point here, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would wield that word and this truth in each one of your lives as you need, that the arrow would find its mark. The scripture has but one meaning, one meaning, but many applications within that meaning. Verse 42, one of the most beautiful verses in scripture often overlooked. And they all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that beautiful? Now we could take that text and all sorts of directions that it does not intend to go, and we won't do that, of course. Yes, it means what it means. 
Primarily that they ate until they were full. The word used here is talking, it's the same used word used for, for animals that have spent all day grazing and eating and they're completely stuffed. They're completely satisfied. But we're not strained from the text to say that it does mean much more than that. It is speaking of more than a physical condition because Jesus uses the exact same words on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be what? Satisfied. And they all ate and were satisfied. Yes, Jesus is saying, I am your satisfaction. I will fill you. And Jesus can prepare that table in the wilderness just as manna for the Israelites. Watch the continued perfection of God's provision here. With verses 43 and 43, I'll read them as one. And they picked up 12 full baskets whole baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Twelve baskets. And these baskets? Full. How full? The word here is pleroma. That describes a full measure or abundance with emphasis upon completeness. Pleroma is completion and describes what is fulfilled or is complete without any gap. Isn't that beautiful? Without a gap. In other words, it's full. Look, disciples. Look at who I am. You're holding it in your hands. I am the bread of life. I'm all you'll ever need. I will supply. Now you twelve all come back. Come in a circle and stare at each other. With twelve overflowing, complete, packed without a gap, baskets of heavenly manna. And they will do just that. And I'm sure their hearts were a churning mix of wonder and of shame and of joy. They went from having nothing to sitting in a circle with 12 baskets overflowing. What do you even say to that? The end of the story will be two very different outcomes. Jesus' miracle here, Scripture tells us, will in fact be judgment upon the village of Bethsaida. Jesus says, quote, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you, what are we talking about? Feeding of the 5,000. Had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. To all who tasted and saw that the Lord was good that day, and yet hardened their hearts in the blinding light of such undeserved grace, their end would be worse than their first. The other ending will be with the disciples who will never forget this day. They witness the bread of life come down from heaven who will in only a short time from now be broken for them. And indeed it's broken for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the bread of life. Come down from heaven Lord, as we have seen this in our mind's eye today, Lord, we are right there with the disciples. And Lord, we feel the same wonder and joy and shame even our, in our own hearts as we see the lack of faith that we approach so many things in our life with. Lord, we ask that you would convict us of that today. We ask that this feeding of the 25,000 would lodge itself deep in our soul and that we might be able to draw upon it in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.